Indeed, O oh God, we are a people whose souls lie in slumber for oh too long. We ask now that by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit that you would awaken slumbering souls and cause them to greet the coming of the Savior all over again. That they might understand afresh the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of the finished work of Jesus Christ for them. Oh God, grant that we might get a fresh taste to a stale soul of the beauty and the excellence of the finished work of Jesus Christ for sinners. Do that, Father. Do that for your own glory's sake. Do that for the health of our soul's sake, we ask you, in Jesus' name. Father, we are a people who, who are aware that we have been purchased with a price. We understand that we no longer belong to ourselves. We are, we are bond slaves of a good God who made us and then went on to find a way to redeem us and provide a sacrifice for our sins. So, in, in light of that sacrifice, we give ourselves all over again. We give a bit of our money, and yet we understand that that money is something you gave us the ability to make. And so use every dime of this for the advancement of the kingdom. Father, we continue to pray for our president. He is, we are, we are convinced he is our brother in Christ, and yet, that doesn't make him infallible. It doesn't make him always wise. And we ask that you would grant those things to him. He is just as needy. He is just as broken. He is just as reliant upon you as any man or woman or boy or girl in this room. We need you. He needs you. Grant your wisdom to him. Father, our world gets to be a scarier and scarier place to live with each passing day. And Lord, the last thing in the world we want to see is more bloodshed on the Gaza Strip. And I pray, O oh God, that somewhere, somehow, that you will pour out a sense of revival in, the, in somebody's church whether it be American or Chinese or, or Ukrainian, but use somebody to announce and proclaim the beauties and the excellencies of the Prince of Peace to a world gone mad. Father, might we be a part of that? Take your Bibles, if you will, and open them with me to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 25. And we can begin this morning in earnest to take a look at the life of Jacob, which I've been Warning you were going to do for the last couple of weeks, but uh, here we go. I'll begin reading at verse 19, and I'll uh, complete my text in verse 26. Genesis 25 at verse 19. You follow in your copies of God's Word. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac. And Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah to be his wife the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Paddan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because he was, because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer and Rebekah his wife conceived. 
the children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. You know, guys, there's no better place to start than at the beginning. And uh, the beginning of the story of Jacob uh, occurs while he's still in the womb. The beginning event in the life of Jacob takes us inside the womb of his mother, Rebecca. This opening story takes us inside the womb, down the birth canal, and out into the light of day. So even before day one of Jacob's life, God's grace is on display. That's what I want to show you this morning. But God is up to something even before the signing of the birth certificate, even before the cutting of the umbilical cord. God is up to something in the life of Jacob. This first scene in the life of Jacob introduces us to a, to a critically important principle, guys, in, in, in the entire scriptures. This is a principle that you need to know as second nature. And the principle is simply this. God chooses to work with the second born. That's the principle. God works with the second born. You know, in the earlier chapters of uh, Genesis, you find that he, he works with Abel, not Cain. Oh, the second born. He works with uh, Isaac, not Ishmael. Ah, the second born. He works with Jacob, not Esau. Ah, the second born. He works with Rachel, not Leah, the second born. The the point, guys, about the second born is that God sees fit to align himself with the marginalized, the outsider, the disenfranchised, the, uh, the displaced. In an economy of grace, the first is always last, and the last is always first. You go to the New Testament and you find, who is it that Jesus hangs out with? Who does he always find him? Where do you always find him having supper? It's with the outcasts. He eats more meals with tax collectors, the, the consummate outsider, than anybody in the New Testament. Because the principle is, guys, God chooses to work with the second born. And what I want to do this morning is that I want to show you that principle in this story. And then secondly, I want to try to venture a guess as to why he does so. And then we're done. So here we go. Um, I have two fairly new grandchildren. One is a boy. One is a girl. The uh, boy, Harry, is um, 
is five months old, and my granddaughter Charlotte is four months old. Uh, one of that means that last summer I had two pregnant daughters. One of those pregnant daughters lives in the city, and so uh, after one of her appointments with her OBGYN, she and her husband dashed over to our house one day, to sh- uh, one afternoon, to show us what is the latest in um, in utero imaging technology. It's called 4D. Have you seen any of this? I mean, it's really rather amazing. It's, it's a fascinating thing because um, you plug your little video into your thing and, and, um, and it shows you while the baby is still inside such detail. I, I, it's, it's phenomenal. I mean, you can see uh, uh, their little nose and what it's going to look like and their little mouth. Their eyes are still closed, but uh, the shape of the head and the face and... You know, we found ourselves watching this 45-minute display of this child that was still in the womb, and people were making comments like these. They would say, uh, "Wow, my goodness, I think he looks like uh, Uncle Herbert." You know, um, yeah, yeah, he, he's got the shape of old uh, Homer's head. You know, um, it, it's really a, a, a fascinating piece of technology. Well, my point is this: if if we had been able to see, to see Jacob in, in 4D technology, I want you to notice what you would have seen. Um, a, a couple of three things. Here's the first thing that you would have seen. You would have seen that he was second. <laughs> that is, he's second on the runway behind his fraternal twin brother Esau. And he is none too happy about that. That is, being second. In fact, he's, uh, he's pondering in there, uh, how he can figure out a way to, um, to get ahead of his brother so that he can be the one that gets out first. The second thing that you would have seen on this technology is Jacob's little hand is searching for something Inside the womb, he's searching for something that he could grab a hold of. Um, because he, he's trying to figure out a way that when the big moment comes, he won't be number two. Because you know how we hate to be number two. So Jacob, while still in the womb, is already up to no good. And so when he comes out, as the text tells you, he's got a hold of a heel. And um, if you've got, if you noticed as I was reading, his name, his Hebrew name, Jacob, means heel grasper. And that heel grasper term became a Hebrew idiom. To be a heel grasper meant that you were, you were a deceiver, you were a, uh, you were a schemer, you were a supplanter, you were a riverboat gambler. And uh, in, the, in, in the dark of that womb, he finds Esau's heel. And um, he grabs it with that little fist of his that's still all covered in vernix. And then the third thing that you would have seen, and, and I, I tell you, this is almost a piece of comedy, and I'm... Um, I, I, this I'm not sure about. Those other two I am sure about. But this, I think you would have noticed on his face that there is a, there is a hint of alarm. Oh, no. 
Esau's in front of me. And if he gets out first, you know what that means? That means that he's going to get all the kudos and all the privileges and, and, and all the advantages that go along with being the firstborn. And um, I can't have that, so whatever will I do? Now, at this point, guys, I'd like to add a word to your vocabulary. Here's the word. Primogenitor. You ever heard of that word? It's a good English word. We still use it today, particularly in, in places like Great Britain. The uh, primogenitor, it really uh, very simply has to do with the rights of the firstborn. Primogenitor is the rights of the firstborn. And in this culture, as well as some today, um, the firstborn is the one who gets all the privileges. He, in essence, is entrusted with family leadership. In, in this culture, guys, um, you wanted a big family, a real big family. Um, the more the merrier, because you, and particularly sons, because the sons were the ones that would work in the fields, and they were the ones that would serve in the army, and they were the ones that took care of mom and daddy when they got old. But um, when, when mom and daddy were dying, and the inheritance was being distributed, it wasn't distributed like we do it today. Uh, like if you, for instance, if you had ten sons, you didn't give a tenth to, to each one of the boys. No, 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 no. You didn't do that. You gave the whole kit and caboodle to the firstborn. He got everything. Everything. And the reason was, if you had ten sons and you gave each one of them a tenth, then in essence, you reduced your family standing in the whole societal um, pecking order. And so to prevent doing that, you kept the whole thing together and, and you gave it to the firstborn. That was the societal norm. That was the accepted way of doing things. That was customary. And yet, practically speaking, what it did is make everybody else besides the firstborn... Nothing more than a valued employee of the firstborn. That was the cultural norm. It was the way things were done. It was the way things operated. It, it, um, it was the commonly accepted human arrangement to assign value. Well, you had the firstborn, and he's the one with all the primogenitor. And then, you know, the secondborn was next, but he only got anything if the firstborn died, which made him the firstborn. So the firstborn got everything, and that's just, that's just the way things happened. That's the way the culture assigned value and, and designated worth was through primogenitor. Meanwhile... Back in the womb, there's Jacob, knowing he's second born. And he and his mother, which we'll see later, he is not going to stop at anything to try and change the fact that he's second born. Now, guys, I'm not suggesting that Jacob knew, um, was aware of all that he was doing while yet in his mother's womb. Here's what I am suggesting. I'm telling you that even, even before there was an umbilical cord to cut, God is up to something. Um, 
something is being said here that has redemptive value to it. And here's what's being said. God is telling you that he delights to align himself with the secondborn. Even in the womb. You will notice in that little piece of poetry in the middle of the text, the older shall serve the younger. Folks, God, by saying that, is overturning centuries of culturally approved human convention. And he is identifying himself with the outsider. You know, the, um, the disenfranchised, the marginalized. That's who God cozies up to. In this scene, God is setting aside everything that men value and everything that they use to establish worth. And, and, and God says, in essence, I don't work the way that you guys work. I don't work the way that men do. My ways are not your ways. You value certain things and I don't value those same things. So you can gather up all of your human device and all of your human terms of evaluation and all of your human estimates of man's value and you can throw it away because I don't work like that. You work like that, but I don't work like that. I associate with the secondborn, with the outsider, the disadvantaged, the marginalized, the disenfranchised. In my kingdom, the first is last. I, I do things completely different than what you think or the way that you might think things ought to work. And the way that you think things might ought to work is not the way that I work. Now, so there's the principle, guys, that God chooses to associate himself with the second born. Now, why? Why does he do that? Why does God operate in a way so much unlike us? Well, let me, let me say this first, guys. It's always dangerous to suggest that you think or that I think I know God's motives about anything. Uh, that's a dangerous thing to do. I, I, I'm, I understand that. But I think in this instance, I do think the Scripture gives us enough grounds to it, it, at least venture a guess. I think it's fairly safe to suggest God's reasons for working with the secondborn. Let me try to explain that, and then we're done. Why, why does he operate that way? I want to suggest to you that it has something to do with our love of human merit. You know, um, merit is a powerful thing. It's a, it's a small little word. It, um, it only has five letters to it, but that word packs quite a wallop. We love merit. We, we love to, to live meritoriously. 
We, um, we love merit raises. We love, um, merit scholarships. We love marital, uh, meritable, um, behavior. You know, behavior, uh, that is meritable is what life is all about. Good behavior. Behavior that, that is recognized by men as something that contains a certain measure of merit to it. And as they do recognize it, they applaud it. They, they approve it. They even envy it. They even perhaps reward that kind of behavior. I crave recognition that would come from my meritable behavior. I, I, I want to have more of it than you've got. And, and in the end, it's, um, it's merit that's going to get me in. In what? Well... In uh, prestigious schools and in uh, power-wielding boardrooms and um, and uh, even socially coveted country clubs, um, we are merit mongers. We 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 were bred by a culture that told us that uh, that merit, our merit, would always be rewarded. Be the best that you can be is, is, is far more than a recruiting slogan, folks. It's our raison d'etre. It's our, it's our reason for being. I, I lived to be the best that I could be. And at the center of my pursuit was my human merit. You know, a, a gangster might be good at what he does. But what he does has no merit to it. And so we lock people like him up in a 12 by 15 cell and throw away the key. It's merit. It's merit-laced performance that I'm after. Give me some rules. Give me some standards. Give me some codes and then get out of my way. Because... From here on, I know what it is that my, that my group, my companions call meritable, and I am off to go do that. I can, I can get to work now. And in the process of my getting to work, I can check off the little things that, uh, the little goodies that I know that my companions approve of. And, and then I'll be able to point to a long list of merit-laden accomplishments about which I am very proud. That, you know, they, they, they set me apart. They make me special. They get me in. You know, gang, it's no wonder that the people of God, the people who make up the church of Jesus Christ, know so little about grace. We were raised on the opposite. The, the breakfast of champions for us was a bowl full of allowable, approvable, rewardable performances. 
it didn't really matter that in secret, you know, in the dark, that we were doing other things. As long as my, as my seeable muscles bulged with, with, um, with rewardable, approvable acts of behavior, And then a crisis occurred, a good crisis. We met Jesus Christ. We, um, we found out the beauty of his finished work. We, 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 we relished in the message that told us that we were forgiven and that we had become a new creature by faith in Christ. But that new creature... Even though he was in possession of forgiveness, that new creature was not drained with all of those performing juices. Those, that part of me is, was and still is a very significant part of my modus operandi. And so somebody stands behind a pulpit and talks to you, talks about grace. And we don't get it. Oh, no, don't, don't misunderstand me, Jimmy. It's not that, that I don't like the songs. Oh, I think John Newton's song, Amazing Grave. Oh, that's, that's just, Jimmy, that's one of my favorites. I love that song. It's not that we don't like the song. It's not that we don't like the discussions. It's not that we don't like to talk about it and sing about it. It's just the whole concept that we don't get. I just can't quite wrap my mind around a gospel that tells me that all of my good works are filthy rags. <laughs> That's not what they told me at the Kiwanis Club when I got that award the other day. That's not what they told me in the boardroom when they gave me my, my, my race. And, and even complicating things more... We, we come into the Christian church as, as saved, redeemed people and wonder, <laughs> well, what's, what's, what's wrong with a few rules? I mean, that my church could give me. You know, if my, if my church could just tell me what it is that would allow me to, you know, to gain God's pleasure and to kind of move up the, the spiritual ladder, I'd really appreciate it. Because if you could just tell me what it is that God really does, um, uh, you know, make him happy, then I'm dead gummit, I'll go do it. Because he knows that I want to be a mature Christian. Isn't that what you people at Gracie Van talk about? Don't y'all like that mature business? Well, just tell me what, what's expected of me and get out of my way. Because I'll go do that. What could be so bad about a, a little small brief code of, of how, telling me how mature Christians are supposed to behave? Because I want to be one of those. And um, aren't, aren't they the ones, those mature ones, aren't they the ones that everybody else looks up to? You know, um, aren't those the ones that you put in the office of elder because they've really, you know, they've done real good on the rules? I mean, um, 
Didn't they get to that maturity business by following the rules? You know, toting their Bibles every Sunday and, and making sure that they're there when the church doors are open. And, 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 and don't, don't you meet, I mean, isn't it true that um, uh, God loves them more than he loves the rest of us average Joes? Ladies and gentlemen, Jacob never heard John Newton's song about amazing grace. Jacob lived the life. You know, the reason that I think I'm so drawn to Jacob is because I see how truly little he had to point to in terms of Good behavior. He's up to no good in the womb. This guy's a car wreck. He's an accident looking for a place to happen. You know, kind of like me. Jacob's spiritual journey begins... With a grace-based choice by God. And then his life unfolds for the next hundred years in the context of grace. Because I guess he just didn't know the rules. You know, guys, very few people can point to his little merit as Jacob could point to but very few of us have have experienced so much hard knuckled grace as did Jacob meanwhile back in the labor room Rebecca has begun to experience this battle of her bulge she is a, this is a tumultuous pregnancy, folks. Her womb has become a battlefield. There is mayhem in the, in her womb. The, the womb mates are not getting along here. And Rebecca's confused. She's concerned. What, what, what is going on inside of me? Why is this happening? She says that. And God answers her. And he says, Rebecca, kind of listen up here, could you? Um, You know that business about the firstborn and (laughs) all that business about human merit and good works and all that business? Um, Rebecca, we're we're not going to work like that up here. (laughs) And... um, uh, you know what, Rebecca? What we're going to do is um, I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to change things up uh, a bit, and um, uh, the older I mean the younger's not going to serve the older. No, 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 no. It's going to be it's going to be the other way around. Uh, the the uh, the uh, the older is going to end up serving the younger. My friends, that reply that you find in the middle of that text is a very famous one. It's a very controversial one. But what is being told to Rebecca 
is that in a stunning reversal of the laws of primogenitor, the older will serve the younger. And that, by the way, ladies and gentlemen, is quoted by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 9. But, 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 but God, wait, wait just a second. What, you know, God, I don't understand. We don't operate down that line. We don't operate that way down here. I know, Rebecca. And that's the point. The point is, Rebecca, that God refuses to work according to rules that men think are fitting. God sets aside all the rules of human convention. What men prize, human merit. What men base their whole sense of worth and value on. What men think will ultimately get them in. I don't work like that. The, um, the order of nature will not determine the order of grace. I, I don't really care how you do it there. Because I'm not looking for merit. I'm not looking for giftedness. I'm not looking for status. I'm not looking for position. I'm not looking for works. Because I just don't work like that. You know, gang, I'm convinced that if God had moved in redemption towards Esau, now, stay with me, if God had, had gone towards the firstborn, somebody would inevitably have found a way to associate God's grace with Esau's firstbornness. If God had moved towards Esau, somebody would be standing behind a pulpit and saying, the way that you get in is that you be the firstest with the bestest. The way to, the way to get yourself approved by God. You just work for it. And yet, ladies and gentlemen, grace that is earned is not grace at all. And so, from the very opening scene, God overturns all of it. And enters into a covenant relationship with Jacob. You know, the second born. You know, the, the heel grasper. The deceiver. The, the supplanter. The, the riverboat gambler. And he turns him into a patriarch. Why? B- because... 
Because Jacob earned it? (laughs) You read this story? Gang, the gospel that we preach, the hope that we have for the world, is about a God who saves based not on anything that I have done or anything that I have not done. It's about a God who saves solely based on what He has done for me and then has given it to me as a gift through faith in Jesus Christ. Gang, perhaps the first lesson of grace is this. Oh my. Oh my. God doesn't work the way I thought he did. Ladies and gentlemen, I can tell you that when I became a Christian at age 22, one of the distinct impressions that was made on me many years ago is that I had spent the first 22 years of my life thinking that the way to get in, work hard, obey the rules, keep your nose clean, help little old ladies across the street, join a club, sing in the choir, give a little money, be a good boy. And then when I got to heaven, it all be okay. Because I had a lot of merit. And I became a Christian. And I found out <laughs> how utterly You want an example, do you? Then look at a young fetus that is still in the womb before he'd ever done anything good, but he's up to no good. And God has chosen to align himself with him. I guess the second lesson of grace is this. That there is no greater estrangement from God than the illusion that we can somehow save ourselves with a lot of hard work. Nothing could be wronger. And I guess the final lesson from that story is a sense of wonderment. Oh God, why did you save somebody like me? Father, I I pray that you will use this uh, story to remind us of the essence and the nature of the gospel we preach. That you would take us to the heart and soul of the matter. That not being my, um, my good works, but the grace of God towards sinners. Oh God.
Make, make this story to burn in the hearts of not only your people, but those who have come here thinking that the way to get in is just to be a good boy. I pray, Lord, that you will convince them by the working of your Holy Spirit that you just don't operate like that. Do that. For Jesus' sake.